it was an accident. But what if it wasn't? This week on Download This Show, you might remember when Facebook blocked access to emergency services while negotiating with the Australian government a little while back. They said it was an accident, but new whistleblowers have contradicted that version of events. Plus, should tech companies be operating in Russia, given the Ukraine war? Where was the worst online misinformation you saw during the federal election? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week from The Guardian, reporter Josh Taylor. Welcome back. Great to be back. I thought my voice did that thing where it goes up and like this. It's probably very annoying for people. I think only dogs can hear me do it. Um, also joining us, thank you for the flat laugh, I appreciate it. Uh, also joining us uh, from WA, Meg Coffee. I did it again. What's wrong with me? Social media strategist, welcome back. Oh, thank you. You're excited to, hit, to hear from us. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's go. Yeah, you know what? Let's go with that. That sounds good. All right. Uh, you may have noticed there was an election in the last seven days, and some things have changed in the world. But what was happening underneath the headlines? What was happening in the world of the internet? Josh, I know that uh, you've sort of been paying attention to this during the uh, election campaign. Where did you see the most kinds of egregious forms of misinformation floating around during the election? I think the ones that uh, the most egregious are generally the ones that fly under the radar. So I think um, WeChat flew under the radar a little bit. Like we, we, we did some reporting on some of the, the different things that were popping up, but a lot of it did fly under the radar because a lot of the media reporting on it don't necessarily look there or, or are not necessarily part of those communities that are, that are seeing those messages. And a lot of the misinformation you do see tend to be shared between individual people. And, and obviously the, the other sort of big one is, is on Telegram. And, and, and again, it, because it's in specific groups, it... it, it you kind of don't really see the impact until it flows into other places like Twitter or, or Facebook and things like that. I think Twitter and Facebook largely did pretty okay-ish mm. this election. Um, I think the interesting thing um, that I saw was in Twitter, there was kind of a lot of misinformation floating around about the voting process, basically saying, you know, um, if you vote a certain way, like you won't count or like the, the AEC is doing this. But the AEC was quite proactive in sort of... Um, tackling when people were saying stuff that was false or incorrect and, and replying to it. Uh, <laughs> I did see one candidate for one of those uh, fringe parties who was, every time he would get corrected by the AEC, he would delete the tweet and then retweet it and then just not allow anyone to reply to it. Mm. So <laughs> I think that was a bit of a flaw in the system. But, uh, you yeah, know, other than that, I think the, the, the one that I think everyone will will know, and, and it, it was difficult to sort of get out, getting out of the... Um, the social media companies, what they were taking down and what they were flagging. But the one everyone will remember would um, would be the Pauline Hanson voting videos. They were forced to be removed because they were basically implying that there was there was voter fraud going on and, and things like that. Um, and that, that the AEC sort of moved very quickly to have that removed. And that was removed and or in YouTube's case made inaccessible in Australia very, very quickly. What do you think, Ming? Do you think... Um Generally speaking, it was well handled on the major platforms. Yeah, I think I think what Josh said is is pretty much the same as how I feel. The the major platforms did do a great job. Where the issue was was maybe in the groups or in some of the smaller community niche conversations where they just can't keep an eye over everything, and that's and that's where some of the misinformation was shared. I think what the AEC has done is just absolutely brilliant. They um. 
they've they've made it fun they've made it interesting but they've also made a point of of taking it really serious and every piece of misinformation they come out with with actual facts and and real you know direction here's where to find more information on that so i think I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm the one that's always loath to give praise to the platforms, but I think <laughs> <laughs> I just thought we'd like break the mold. Yeah. It's like it's 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 a new it's a new day. it's a new day. Yeah, no, I think they, I think they did a good job, all things considered. I think it, it's hard, and and they did a good job. I think it's worth pointing out. Just uh, if, if you have been playing along, uh, AEC is the Australian Electoral Commission, and uh, they are the ones that have been very, very, very kind of sassy and and really good at correcting misinformation in a really short um, order on, particularly on Twitter. I think on Twitter, they're particularly good. I guess just coming back to that initial idea, uh, Josh, when you do have misinformation that has sort of been pushed into sort of subterranean spaces of sort of one-to-one communication, so uh, places where like in Telegram groups and and, um, and WhatsApp groups, there is no sort of like public component of it unless somebody sort of, you know, screenshots it and places it on one of the bigger platforms. Is that tackleable? Like is it, is it, is it technically tackleable or is it really about people as opposed to a, a technical solution? I, I think it really comes down to people and, and I guess the media has a role to play there too, basically pointing it out and, and highlighting the, the fact that it's wrong. And I, I think we probably have to do more, a, a better job of doing that. Um, the other thing is that that's probably worth mentioning is that um, although the AAC was doing quite a good job, its scope is quite limited in terms of what it can take action against. So uh, throughout the election, I kept seeing people and, and we put calls out asking for people to share their, um, the misinformation they were seeing with us. A lot of the stuff that they were that people were raising as issues that they claimed was misinformation or disinformation was just on issues of policies and things like that. It wasn't to do with the voting process. And the, and the AAC only has remit over the voting process. We don't have in place federally any sort of like truth in political advertising laws that would sort of rule on whether you know, a death tax or, or stuff like that is is within within the rules and things like that. So I think that a lot of what people were complaining about or, or saw as misinformation was just sort of the usual sort of, um, my opponent will promise this and do this, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> which is not really sort of within the, the, the big things that people worry about when it comes to election. It's, it's not election integrity issue, I guess. Meg, there's roughly 700,000 WeChat users in Australia. Why do you think what happens on WeChat doesn't get reported more broadly in the same way that quotes and Facebook comments and things like that do end up getting, you know, sometimes even turning into actual news stories? But it doesn't seem to translate as often in WeChat. And is there something you can put that down to? My blunt response is because it's the China, it's it's China's app. It's it's not the one that is used by the Western world. Simply put, now it's more than that, right? So um, WeChat has definitely broken out of China, but ultimately, look, it is it is the app that is used within China. It's monitored by the Chinese government. There's things about it that that make it make it different. And so I think that's why we, it's not that we necessarily forget about it, but it's just not as mainstream as the other apps to the majority of the world that we're reporting on. It's worth noting as well, TikTok being a Chinese app also um, took down those Pauline Hanson videos. So it's like, ten, uh, I think um, uh, WeChat is kind of a, in a different space overall, but it was interesting that, that TikTok kind of followed the sort of model that all the other companies had set up. Yeah, I mean, WeChat doesn't have the, I mean, they say that they take the stuff down, but it's not the same type of moderation, whereas, you know, Twitter and Facebook and, and TikTok have come out and, and pointedly said, we don't allow this type of information. WeChat's been a little bit shadier about it. One of the other defining features, I guess, of an election is that there is this media blackout, right, that happens uh, before an election where suddenly you can't necessarily see ads 
for campaigners on TV and radio. But in the age of the internet, right, where there's so much digital advertising going on, is a media blackout still worthwhile or do you think, Josh, it should at least somehow be somehow be amended to include the internet as well. Because I was watching like Lego Masters with my kids on, on Nine Now and there was a bunch of election ads well, well, well past the um, the, the media blackout. And I was like, hold on, how can they do that? And then I went, oh, it's, it's Nine Now. It's, it's the internet. It doesn't count. So, I mean, is it a point at which we should start to talk about whether the media blackout should contain things like online content as well? I think it should be expanded to include social media. I mean, if I ever have to hear that hole in my budget song ever again, I'm going to I'm going to lose it. Um, it, it is interesting though. There's there's two sort of factors ways you can look at it. So, the United Australia Party spent millions of dollars and millions of dollars, and a lot of that was pumped into YouTube and and Facebook ads, and it had zero effect on the election. Like, it, it they they're not they're not going to get one lower house seat. They'll be lucky if they even get one Senate seat. So. The, the fact that they pumped in millions and millions of dollars was not convincing to Australian voters. So they can spend all this money and it doesn't have an impact. I guess it just annoys people more than anything else. So um, I, I can understand. I think we should just extend it to um, include all social media just to keep the rules consistent across the board. Totally agree. We we definitely need a blackout on social media. We know that people consume media differently and, di- and different generations, you know, the younger ones are not on free to air. They're not consuming it the way that the older generations are. So definitely there needs to be a ban, not just because we hate it, but because it needs to be, um, I think, I think a lot of the, the parties are starting to exploit the social advertising. All right, download this show is what you are listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Our guest this week, Josh Taylor from The Guardian and social media strategist Meg Coffey. An interesting story. So there is this hugely successful graphic design firm named Canva. It's one of the great success stories of Australia. And they came in for some criticism recently about not taking a harder line on Russia. And it struck me that there were, you know, we've seen a raft of headlines about different companies around the world basically choosing to not operate or, or drastically limit their services in Russia in response to the, the Ukraine war. But where is the right line? It's not specifically about Canberra itself, who I think have actually changed under some pressure, changed their rulings under pressure. But where is the right line? Where, where is the role for technology companies, which remembering technology companies are often crucial ways of getting information throughout the, uh, the world. What's the right role that a tech company can play in a conflict like this in terms of shifting how we talk about it. So, Meg, just with you, where did Canva land in this story in the end? Look, it was, I think it was a tough one for them. And in the end, they said, look, we, we will, we've stopped all payments so that people can't subscribe to our pro service. However, the free service is still available. Um, and so we're, we're kind of, I don't want to say it's doing the best that we can. It's not that, but it's, you know, they're limiting it in ways, but they say that they still want people to be able to, to, to access the, the free side to have pro-Ukraine content. That's where the, the, the gray line comes in, though, or the furry line, fuzzy line comes in. Is there a good way of doing this, Meg? I mean, not just from a... I guess there's a there's a public relations component to it, but it, but in like a practical sense, like what is the role that the tech companies should be playing? I guess in a very ugly uh, war, like what is the role they can play? What can they play, or what should they play? That's you know that's that's two questions. I think it's a tough one. I think you know in, in a beautiful world, you'd say that tech companies had no role to play in this, that they shouldn't be getting involved in conversations, but that's not the world that we live in. I think you know it's. 
I think platforms are different. Tech companies are different. What's the tech the tech that you're offering? I think it's it's wonderful to say that you know in in this case we're allowing our platform to be used by people who are pushing the message that we want. But who, that's what it is. It's the message that we want. What what happens when it's the message that we don't want? Um, it's 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 a it's a hard one. You don't want to cut people off from from freedom, but at the same time, you don't want to allow bad uh, bad things to happen, for lack of better mm. words. So I guess for comparison's sake, Josh, I mean, if you look at some of the other technology companies, so we'll just go with the big ones, right? So Twitter, limited content from more than 300 uh, Russian government accounts, including President Putin. YouTube removed more than 9,000 channels relating to the Ukraine war. There are things that different organisations can do, but for you, is there a... Is there a guiding principle, perhaps, to how tech companies should be handling events like the Ukraine war? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So um, Twitter and Facebook and a couple of the other companies that did, I think it's, you can't sort of make a, a sort of a, a flat rule. Um, it's, it's interesting YouTube that did not because there's so many, a lot of these companies do have a lot of workers in in Russia. Um, and that, that's been something, I mean, I remember remember when everyone was doing those um, those photo app things where they turned themselves into, into artist drawings and things like that. I was looking into it and a lot of the workers at that company work out of Russia. So a lot of people were sort of being scared that there was, you know, a secret Russian app that was going to hoover up everyone's information, but it just sort of turns out that that's just the way people, like a lot of people just work out those companies. So it's, it's, it's an interesting one that I, I don't think the companies are fully grappled with them. And I think we're all sort of feeling this out as we go along. There's no set rule in a lot of these places. And that's what we're seeing play out now. It's uh, There's an expectation that they follow that. So yeah, it's something that we're still coming to grips with. What about like an underlying principle, Meg? Is there some way that that is there some underlying way in which uh, organisations should be thinking about how to have, handle big major events like this? Definitely. I mean, every company needs to have a crisis management plan in place, and that's not just for for internal things, but it's for how you know when, when world events happen, how their company is going to react to those world events, and and where they want to be seen. And I think that you know it, it's something as Josh said, we're we're all still finding our feet. The technology that we have now didn't exist the last time that war was on, or at least not in this in this way. I think it's, you know, every company sets out to say we want to do no harm and we don't want our company to be involved in harm. It's just how you play that out in the real world that every company needs to have a, have a long, long think about if they want to be a global company. Well, any company in general, how do, how do we want our company perceived in the world? All right, download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And the Australian eSafety Office has a role where it can tell websites to remove certain kinds of content. But they did something interesting where they removed a really horrific attack video, Josh. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened to you? Yeah, so um, after the Buffalo attack, uh, in uh, an 18-year-old man in, in Buffalo, New York, went and um, shot up a uh, supermarket, killing, I think, about 10 people. He streamed the video online briefly on Twitch, and then um, the video got circulated elsewhere, as well as posted his sort of screed about what he th- the reasons why he thought he should do this. Uh, so since Christchurch, uh, the e-safety commissioner has these powers to uh, spring into action when, when this sort of material is being shared around online and uh, basically write to websites, say, you need to remove this content, otherwise you'll be fined. Um, and if they don't comply, then if the site is hosted overseas, then uh, it can basically tell the internet service providers to block these websites from access in Australia. Now, in in the Buffalo case, they they identified about eight websites that were hosting this content, sent letters to them. Four of them removed it, and, and another four refused. One of the websites I noticed um, 
posted the letter online basically mocking it and saying, lol, no, we're not going to remove this. Um, we have free speech in America. But the eSafety Commission didn't actually go to the full step of actually blocking the websites, which I thought was quite interesting. They basically determined that the content was being shared on websites that just don't have a lot of um, online traction and, and don't really aren't really getting noticed. So, so I think that the, the impact is not going to be that great. So they, they're just basically in a, in a, in a watch and wait. They, they did say they do have other powers in terms of sort of telling Google to remove it from search results and things like that. But when I checked last week, they hadn't done it. So it's an interesting sort of test of these new powers since Christchurch and, and seeing how it's being used in practice now. Why would they not have gone to the next stage of blocking? Because if you've gone to enough effort to kind of flag it, Meg, what would stop you from blocking? Is there some, is there something about blocking that, that, you know, feels like it's disproportionate to the problem it's trying to solve? Is that, would that be the logic of it? Well, I don't know that it's necessarily disproportionate, but I think it feels final. And I think that these new laws are, are, are new. And so we are still trying to find our feet and we're try, trying to find the right way. Um, do you cause the Streisand effect by blocking them right away? You know, drawing more... What's the Streisand effect? <laughs> drawing more attention to them than if you had just not mentioned them in the first place, right? As, as Josh said, these are sites that, that don't necessarily get a lot of traffic. So if all of a sudden we are, you know, as a government seem to be blocking them, is that going to draw a whole lot of attention that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise? So in that way, does it does it seem disproportionate can it, can it be blown out of um blown out of context to be disproportionate i think you know the 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 e-safety commissioner is you are playing a game in a way you're trying to see okay look will you you know will you respond to this four of the people did respond and and they said that you know we'll take it down the other four um didn't i i think from memory one of the ones that didn't pull it down is also someone that got in trouble for sharing the christchurch stuff so People are pushing back, but I think that, you know, the, the e-safety commissioner wants to be taken seriously and and is going to dole out punishments, but is going to try, a you know, a three-strike rule or, or try and give people a chance to do the right thing. You know, ultimately, I think people... I think the people in the world wants to do the right thing. Whether or not that's the fact is, is another story. <laughs> I guess it also, Meg, it also kind of highlights the fault lines of an international internet, right? Like there are obviously going to be things that are controllable in nation states. You know, we were talking about it a little bit earlier with social media and, uh, and, and WeChat, right? There are going to be some things that within certain kinds of boundaries and borders you can control, but the internet is not that <laughs> writ large. You know, the internet is, he says, uh, stating the bleeding obvious, it is global. Uh, and I think in some ways, Josh, it kind of highlights the, the limitations of, of some of these laws, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I, I definitely thought that these letters were just being sent out as a, a, a checker box motion because they know that they can't enforce fines or anything like that from people who don't live or reside in Australia. Um, I, I did think it was interesting that they decided against uh, harsher action. I think because there's been a lot of focus on just how, like, the eSafety Commissioner has so many powers now and there's this fear that it, it, there's going to be a heavy-handed approach to it. Um, I think particularly under the former government, we'll have to wait and see what how it works under the, uh, the, the new government we've got now. There was, there was concern that, um, you know, particularly might go after adult websites, might go after, um, you know, um, people's Twitter accounts and things like that. I think that they're, they're, they've sort of taken a sort of steady, sort of moderate approach to a lot of this stuff, even though, like, 
I don't think anyone would disagree that that, that the um, Buffalo stuff should be removed from the internet, but they just don't want to be seen to be this sort of iron fist for content straight away and just like blocking things as soon as it sort of comes up. I think it really does highlight that once you have these extraordinary powers, it actually can sometimes make people more timid in how they use them because you know that if you if you do things that feel like they massively overstep the mark, there will be backlash. And I think that it's a delicate position, I think, for the e-safety commissioner to be in with these new powers because you, you sort of want them to prove their worth. But at the same time, Meg, if you overstep, if you, if you do things that are wildly out of line with the public's expectations, it will become a story and it will become a story about censorship and free speech. And that's a really delicate space, even though, you know, free speech isn't strictly speaking enshrined in Australia as it is in places like the US. It's still conceptually something that we, we believe we are owed. And the internet is sort of you know, it's it's in the very DNA of the internet, this idea, it's, you know, for better, for worse. And if the e-safety commissioner does things that feel like it, it's not in the spirit of what the the internet should be and what not in the spirit of what, commu- you know, free communication should be, it could really have a massive backlash, couldn't it? Exactly. And if you, you know, if you come out of the gates blocking the first couple of things, what happens when you actually have an issue that you need to block? You know, you're, you're wielding the same punishment to something that is possibly 10 times worse. So I think they are, you know, going with a steady hand and, and trying to not be seen as overbearing, but go, look, we're watching, we're paying attention. Here's your, here's your chance to fix things up. But we also, you know, we don't want to be seen foolish and, you know, coming out with this heavy hand when we know full well that we can't necessarily fully enforce everything, at least not fines or or things across international borders. So one interesting thing, uh, uh, the e-safety commissioner, Julie Eman Grant, is uh, at um, a World Economic Forum this week and she uh, made a comment where she said our understanding of the internet, of free speech on the internet should probably be recalibrated and that's an interesting way of sort of looking at it. And then she's, when she says it, she's referring to... Um, People shouldn't be free to effectively just abuse people online all day, which is which is what her her main focus is. It's it's cracking down on bullying, but it's just sort of an interesting insight into how she's sort of seeing her role now. It's like people are for free speech, but we need to sort of consider what the limitations of that actually is. Meg, I kind of, I mean, it's a very broad statement, but I kind of agree that our relationship with free speech on the internet is something that is worth at the very least re-examining where, when it becomes unhealthy, you know? Well, I definitely agree. I think it comes down to a couple of things. I think it, there's a, there's a level of manners that doesn't exist when it comes to the internet. You know, the, the saying that you wouldn't say that to their face, but you feel free to say it on the internet. Right. Um, it's not necessarily just free speech. It's people just saying whatever they want, whether it's fact, alternative fact, or, or whatever. But we've lost we've lost a sense of manners. We've lost you know a lot of a lot of people call Twitter you know you're just shouting out into the uh, shouting out into the wind like old man Simpson. Um, <laughs> but we have we we've we've forgotten the manner side of things and the way to speak to people and the way to express our opinions. Now the way to express our opinions is that you know a a moral thing that I've been taught. I'm not sure, but I think I think manners comes down to a lot of it. We have, we have we should be able to say the the things that we think, but we need to have manners around how we deliver it. 
All right, finally here on Download This Show, Facebook has been accused of deliberately disrupting emergency services in Australia. Josh, uh, of course, a while back uh, we had a range of emergency services that were shut down while Facebook was negotiating, I guess you could say, with the Australian government. And at the time it seemed like it was a mistake. But was it really, Josh? <laughs> well, if you if you believe Facebook, then they they are still claiming it was accidental um, and not deliberate. But uh, so some whistleblowers from within Facebook have made a submission to uh, U.S. Congress as well as um, the ACCC here in Australia, basically saying that no, actually it was deliberate, um, and they've got the the chat logs to prove it. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of. Uh, back and forth within within people in, in Facebook. So they set up an, a specific ACCC response team that were basically in charge of, of um, implementing this this plan and brought into effect. And when, when people who were outside this team started to notice, well, why, why are these websites blocked? Why is the, the Australian government website blocked? And proposed solutions, they were basically ignored by this team and their, their requests just went nowhere. Um, and, it, you know, it... These, these poor staff who were trying to, f- to, to fix the problem internally kept sort of questioning why, you know, they, they even proposed solutions saying, here's a bit of code you can stick in that will, that will unblock these pages or ignored. And then when, you know, the, the Australian government relented a little bit and, and um, didn't decided not to designate Facebook under the news media bargaining code, which would have forced it to negotiate with media companies, um, suddenly, you know, it, it all miraculously fixed up very quickly. And, and, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and others were sending congratulatory emails to everyone apart from those staff who were um, trying to fix it in the first place. So uh, Facebook obviously denies all of this, but it does go in quite in depth in terms of just how much, um, how, th- how things were going a bit differently to how Facebook was saying at the time. Ah, Facebook. <laughs> Meg, does any of this, I mean, obviously, you know, just to underline again, obviously Facebook have denied all this uh, pretty vehemently, but does it come as a surprise to you, let's say, Meg? Allegedly, all of it, right? Allegedly, I'll say that multiple times, allegedly. No, look, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I don't think a single thing happens on the platform that Mark Zuckerberg isn't aware of, Allegedly. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's how that word works. Just quietly, I I don't think that word does what you think it does. <laughs> no, look, honestly, no, I don't. I don't think in this situation there was a thing that happened without Zuckerberg and team knowing this was too big of a too big of a discussion uh, for the the senior management and the CEO not to be across what was happening. Does this surprise me at all? No. Does this surprise me that a corporation was was going to do something to try and get their way? No. That's the way that business works. Do I agree that it happened? Or do I agree that it happened? Well, allegedly it happened. Um, No. Do I do I agree that it was right? No. I think it was horrible, and I think that I think that it. You know, I said this at the time last February. It was like a you know a child throwing a tantrum and just throwing the toys out. I have a love-hate relationship with Facebook, as you know, or with Meta, and I just mm. think that this this whole thing does nothing to help their case as good moral people, things, apps that you want in your life. Ah, Facebook. I mean, <laughs> you know, we did we started the show saying nice things about Facebook and Twitter. And I think it's safe to say that. Um, the natural order of the world has been restored. <laughs> and with that, we are out of time. Thank you so much to Meg Coffey, social media strategist. Really appreciate having you back on the show. Oh, thanks. It's always a good laugh. And Josh Taylor from The Guardian. A pleasure as always. Thanks for having me again. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. Download This Show.